0: David, what is deep canvassing? What is deep canvassing? Um, That was one of the things that started this whole journey for me. I read an article in the New York Times about what they were up to. And at that time, the big wedge issue, believe it or not, it's hard to to accept that this was true just a few years ago, was same-sex marriage. People were arguing about same-sex marriage in the way they argue about things like, gun control today or or most recently it would be the abortion debate it was people on two very clear sides for and against arguing all day on the internet news articles were there were as many news articles about the arguing as there were about the topic and then this article came along and said that these people in Los Angeles had devised a technique to go door to door knock on people's front doors and within 20 minutes flip their opinion on a wedge issue. And specifically it was same-sex marriage that they were having the most success with. And it was in the early days of trying to figure out what kind of book is this going to be. And I was like, that's that's the thing. That's really the thing. And I emailed them and then called them and then eventually flew out there. And I, I went out there uh, on four different occasions. And on three of those occasions, I, I trained in the art and practice of deep canvassing and went door to door with them and did it and learned how to do it and, um, and spent weeks with them. It was great. So deep canvassing is, deep canvassing is a conversational technique. They, they would consider it conversational. It's also, you could look at it as a persuasion technique, but it's a way to engage with other person who may disagree with you on this particular issue and get them to see things a little differently and possibly move them along the attitude scale, uh, especially if you're trying to canvas for a certain vote on a certain issue to canvas in a way that persuades them to vote in the way you'd rather them vote. So the way it came about was Prop 8 in uh, California, when it went through, it was it made it was a vote to see if whether or not California would make same-sex marriage legal, and they failed in that regard. And it was absolutely astonishing to the LGBT center of Los Angeles and other LGBT centers in the in the state because it just seemed like such a state that it was progressive in that regard. Many people move there for that reason to live more openly. And Dave Fleischer, who is the uh, man, he's the leader of something called the Leadership Lab which is the political action wing of the LGBT Center of Los Angeles, he said, what if we just went out to the regions where we, the polling shows we most likely lost and knock on people's doors and ask them, how come you didn't vote for this same-sex marriage thing? And And that's what they did. They went door to door, and they were astonished that people really wanted to talk about it. And so many people wanted to talk about it at such length they started recording their conversations and they eventually started recording them on video. And so they ended up with thousands of these videos. And um, when I met met with them, they had already gotten up to 17,000 videos. And in the course of doing that, every once in a while in a conversation, someone would flip their opinion in the conversation. And they thought, that's fascinating. What if we tried to replicate that? And they looked at the two or three videos where that took place. And they tried to A, B test everything inside them. Do do this. If it works, keep it. If it doesn't work, throw it away. And through an iterative process, they zeroed in on this technique called deep canvassing. And now they have a very high success rate. A high enough success rate that people, uh, social scientists come to to study them. Uh, Activist groups in every domain you can imagine come there. And the tool itself has been expanded to talk about issues about race and immigration and um, not just wedge issues, too, it was used in phone banks during the last political election. So it's a very powerful uh, technique that I was astonished to learn through the course of writing this book, Has uh, shares a lot of features with a lot of other rhetorical techniques that they were completely unaware of. And also there's a lot of scientific foundations here that they were not aware of either. It was just through this A-B testing and lots of funding that they they sort of uh, rediscovered some things and newly discovered others. It's really fascinating.
1: You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and I'm Tom Vander And today I am joined by David McCraney. He's the author of a great new book, How Minds Change, The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion, and Persuasion. David is also the host of a great podcast called You Are Not So Smart. Welcome to the Getting Smart
0: Podcast. It's perfect. We should have met earlier. These these uh, if, if if not just for search engine optimization, uh, the, we have shared interests and goals and values, and the Venn diagram had to overlap at some point. So I'm happy to be here.
1: Who introduced
0: you to Caravan Palace? <laughs> I I um, YouTube. I don't know. It was like a suggested video, and it was I loved the song that I heard, and then. I got the album, and the album version did not sound anything like it. And it turned out that the thing that was on YouTube was something from their um, demo tape days. From their demo tape days, and I emailed them. I finally got a hold of their manager and said, "Can I use your thing?" And they were like, "Sure." I was like, but "Can I use your? Can I use your? Can I use your YouTube thing?" And they were like, oh, "I don't know about that." So it took a little bit of wrangling, but I got a hold of it eventually. It, and, um, it
1: is the craziest, catchiest, the most idiosyncratic, um, podcast, uh, opening music. When, when I hear it, I know it's McCraney. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you. I, I wanted one. I looked I wanted a song that it would pause so I could say the name of the show in it. And it had that perfect spot in it. But full disclosure, I reached out to the dust brothers before that who did the fight club soundtrack. Cause they also have a song that has a nice little pause in it, but they straight up were like, look, we couldn't even use it for stuff that's owned by Fox. Tell pictures, they will never give you rights to it. So I moved on. <laughs>
1: I I love it. It's awesome. Uh, you're you're brave for using it. It's crazy. Um, you, I I want I want I'm trying to figure out how to introduce you to the getting smart audience. You're you're I, I think of you as a, a public intellectual that's been learning out loud about why people do the things they do, particularly in groups. It feels to me like you're. Knitting together knowledge at the forefront of social psychology—is that how do you think about what you do?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's changed over time. I'm rooted in social psychology, of course, but over time, it's evolved and changed and mutated. I—I mean, my official degree is journalism, and but it's all and psychology. I'm one of those rare people that used both used their both their degrees. Um, so yeah, I went to school to be a, a therapist and then switched it toward the end. It was like, no, I'd rather be a journalist. And then I went out in the world and did newspapers and television and things like that. And then some lawyer along the way, I I wanted to write because I was no longer writing. I was editing and, uh, helping television personalities learn how to write for the web. So I started a blog about my central passion, which is, um, the psychology of reasoning and decision-making and judgment. And that just took off. I eventually got a book deal and that led to wanting to start a podcast and that led to just being this person who makes this stuff. So now in my bio, I say that I'm a science journalist and author who's fa- who is fascinated with brains, minds and culture. Um, but yeah, you're right. I just, I, I, we were talking a bit earlier, like uh, there are other contemporaries in this spot, this sort of new space um, I think we all remember like Carl Sagan and Attenborough. I also love James Burke and there's a new sort of generation across several generations. Some of, I see a lot of new ones on TikTok too. Very young people, uh, people who make stuff, but also are very scientifically curious and, you know, check their notes, do a lot of fact checking, show you their work, Hank Green, Joe Hanson and others. So that's where I am. I don't know if there's a, Name for what we're doing exactly, but I'm happy to be doing it.
1: I I believe your work is so important because it um, it is surfacing dated mental models. Uh, I think economics and education are both built on the the rational man theory, the individual actor, and so education is the act of filling one's head with knowledge. We 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 shifted 10 years ago to thinking much more about skills, but it's about filling your head with knowledge and, and giving your hands a new set of skills, but as an individual actor, and we we live in this uh, society d- d- driven by um, economics based on uh, the, the rational individual. And it turns out both of those are fundamentally wrong that we are, we're super social as you as you say in your books and that it's, it's much more about the beliefs and attitudes and values that we hold as members of groups that dictate our behavior. Is that?
0: Yeah. I mean, we're, we're a complex nuanced thing, but pedagogically, I hope I said that word correctly. I like that word. Uh, The, 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 it's odd, you know, that in learning domains, there would be this mismatch because like, Jean Piaget is so fundamental to my thinking and all this. And that's like supposed to be the basis of pedagogy. The assimilation and accommodation model is so important. We can talk about that, but yeah, the, we're a very complex, nuanced entity. I like to think of it more like uh, if we want to play around with some like metaphors and similes, the, if you, the muscles of your arm did not evolve through natural selection to paint paintings or type. Uh, letters to people, but it's, they're very good at doing that. Um, Likewise, the most, many of the mechanisms, the, the cognitive mechanisms, the mental uh, machinery of the brain that arises from the actual biological underpinnings of all that, it didn't evolve through natural selection to engage in formal logic and uh, certain kinds of uh, propositional, uh, purely rational probability type thinking that we are very good at doing, but we don't innately fall along those. We don't innately pursue that kind of uh, thinking unless we're in an environment that helps us frame it in that way, or we're in a social environment that encourages that and vets it and gives us sort of a pilot's checklist to engage in that kind of thing. So we're very good at. We've invented all sorts of things, like science and academia and law and medicine. Where, when it's working properly, we can really do incredible things in that rational, reasonable domain. Um, but if you step, I mean, if you even in a, a place like that, like there are plenty of halls of academia where people are doing some uh, really irrational things, and uh, there are plenty of uh, places where doctors of medicine. Uh, Are engaging in behavior that they uh, tend to regret. So it's just a function of, uh, it's one system that's working on top of another. It's a very complex set of uh, neural, it's a very complex (laughs) neurological system that is capable of amazing feats of reason and rationality, but uh, we're not exactly innately set up to do that. We're actually more concerned with what people think of us more than anything (laughs) else. I could put it very succinctly. uh, The sociologist, Brooke Harrington, told me that the equals mc square of social science, it, it would be, the fear of social death is greater than the fear of physical death. And when that's the proposition on the table, we will we will put our our reputation in the lifeboat and let the ship go down with our body. That's just how we work as as, as a social primate.
1: Yeah, I love that observation. I think if you're a high school principal, you you see that every day in the hallways that social death can be viewed to be even. Even more significant than than physical death, and yet we we haven't really taken that insight uh, to heart in the way we create learning organizations. Let, we'll, let's come back to that. Um, I'm wondering if the Crocs and socks and the, and the and the dress, you know, the striped dress. I wonder if those were early signs, whenever that came out five or six years ago, that we see things differently. At, and I know that was just one neurobiological version of that, and that there are, there are many other ways we see things differently. But that did that help wake people up to the fact that we see we view um, things in the world differently?
0: I think so. In that, and I, it was a great gift for me because th- in my book, I wanted to I wanted to be on the ground for every chapter. I didn't want to be writing from. Purely from the literature, or, or purely just from interviews over you know the phone or whatever. I wanted it to be. I met these people. This is the information I'm getting from them, and so on. And it was in that particular chapter. I wanted to talk about learning. I wanted to talk about how brains construct their models of reality and how they update and don't update and resist. And then the researchers behind the dress came along, and and uh, I met them in New- at NYU, and I was like, oh my god, this is this is what exactly what I was looking for. In fact. Jay Van Babel, a psychologist there at NYU, told me he's like, you need to talk to Pascal Walsh because his dress research is his dress research is exactly what you're looking for. So yeah. Um there are a couple of concepts in psychology that it helps illustrate for people if they're never if they've never come across them. And there are several concepts in philosophy, uh and and you know, and all the concepts in learning that it, if you haven't academically come across them, it it sh- it revealed them to you. One is naive realism. Naive realism is the concept that uh, you have a pretty good understanding of the world, and very little of your perspective is biased. That it's all fact based; it's very evidence based. And therefore, if someone someone disagrees with you, all you have to do is show them the facts, and then they will interpret those facts as you do, and therefore agree with you. So that's that's naive realism. It's very close to something called the information deficit hypothesis, the idea that people who are wrong about things or have strange attitudes. Just give them more information and they'll come around. Uh, neither neither one, that is not true. Uh, the 19th century rationalist philosophers, they thought that uh, public education would get rid of all superstitions. The uh, um, founding fathers, they thought, hey, what if we had public libraries in every town? That'll get rid of, that'll.
1: We thought this about social media 15 years ago, that it would just level us up. We'd all get smarter.
0: Yeah, the, even in the early days, like uh, Timothy Leary and other the early cyberpunks, they were like, "As soon as we have internet, everybody's got internet. Then we'll all have all 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 the world's information will be available to everyone, and then even further than that, in their pockets, maybe. And that means no more misinformation, no more lies, no more superstitions, no that stuff, no more gatekeepers. You put power to the people, as they put it. So, of course, what none of these thinkers have ever considered is something that's very well understood in psychology, which is motivated reasoning. And that is uh if you ever my favorite example of motivated reasoning is when somebody is falling in love with someone and you ask them, why do you like them? What reasons do you have to fall in love with this person? They'll say, oh, the way they the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they the way they cut their food even. And then the the music they've introduced me to, the television shows you watch. Then when they're breaking up with that exact same person and you ask, why are you breaking up with them? Why don't you like them? The way they talk, the way they walk, the way they cut their food, the dumb music they listen to, the shows they make me watch. So reasons for become reasons against when their motivation to search for reasons change. And we always have motivations to search for that which will confirm and our our beliefs and that which will uh, validate our attitudes and assure our values. So with the dress, as you were talking about, one of the things that, it helps illustrate all these principles in a very stark way for anyone who doesn't remember this and I haven't met anyone yet who has it but some ways someday someone will it was a dress that it was an image of a dress that went around on the internet and went viral for some people it appeared black and blue for some people it appeared white and gold but if you didn't meet another person who saw it differently than you you might never know that because the way it appeared just happens you exp- it happens to you it's it's an, it's not a choice it doesn't seem like it could be any other color it is that color and then of course thanks to the internet people started meeting other people who saw it completely differently and the reaction of course was what's wrong with you like like there, this is what it looks like there's something wrong with you but the other person thinks the same thing because they have no choice and there's no way to uh, introspect and understand what processing led to your perceptual experience. But thanks to the research, uh, by Pascal Wallace and Michael Karlovich, we now know why people see it differently. It's called a bistable perceptual illusion an uh, intrapersonal bistable perceptual illusion. So you can think of like the, uh, the picture of like the duck rabbit, where everyone can see that it could be interpreted in one of two different ways. They call this disambiguation in neuroscience and psychology. It's an ambiguous image and you can disambiguate it as a rabbit or as a a duck. The dress happens to also be a ambiguous object, but in this case, it's the lighting conditions that are ambiguous. It's clearly overexposed, but it's unclear to each individual brain. What's the nature of the overexposure? And there's something in neuroscience called subtracting the luminant, which we do all the time. Every time we're around something overexposed, whether it's an image or whether it's in you know, meat space, uh, if it's overexposed without our knowledge, a little bit of that exposure is subtracted so that we can see it more clearly. As I say in the book, it's a, it's a lie the brain tells you to help you see what ought to be the truth in this situation. And so to subtract the overexposure, you have to have some experience with overexposure to know what color what the overexposure was. So in this case, people who had spent more time, and this was a, this was a re- research done with more than 13,000 participants, lots of uh, checks and balances, replicable in many different ways and it stands that people who've spent more time around sunlight, uh, people who wake up earlier or who work around windows. They tend to have had more experience with things overexposed by the sky, so things on the bluer side of the spectrum, they subtract the blue overexposure, they end up with a white and gold dress. People have spent more time away from sunlight, around incandescent light, which is mostly in the yellow side of the spectrum. They subtract yellow, assuming it's overexposed, and that way they get a blue, black and blue dress. And What's important here is your experiences in life lead you to develop these priors, that in moments of uncertainty and ambiguity, you will lean on to disambiguate that which is ambiguous. And the very most important point is you never experienced ambiguity. You never experienced uncertainty. And it can feel like that is the truth. And it is. It is the truth of your perceptions. And in this case, you run up against this beautiful philosophical 2000-year-old idea of, well, what if my perceptions are different from your perceptions? Then what is the truth of the matter? And in this case, the dress is one of those great things. Like it finally solves that old dorm room question of do you think we all see the same colors? Um, no, we don't. And sometimes sometimes it creates this confusion. I love it because the Pascal Wallish and Karlovich, they took this further and created something called SurfPad. I love SurfPad. They're real cheeky dudes. Uh surf pad means uh substantial uncertainty in the presence of ramified or forked prior assumptions will lead to substantial disagreement. Uh, It's better understood. I think with illustration, basically you think of a line and above the line is, are all the experiences that the other person has had. And that's not only their perceptual experiences, like in the case of overexposed images, but you know, all their received wisdom, all the times I've ever interacted with a dog or eaten a sandwich, uh, everything they've ever learned, everything they've ever learned was wrong and updated, all that stuff that's happened to them, they bring that to moments of uncertainty. And what happens is the uncertainty is resolved. And what's left behind is this raw experience, whether it's purely mental or it's perceptual, but you never know that you never felt the uncertainty. You never felt the ambiguity. And this is also what happens with another person. And sometimes that resolution is so different that you end up saying, how could you possibly see this any differently than me? That makes no sense to me. And if you argue at that level, nothing great comes out of it. So the big lesson from it is, imagine if someone who saw the dress as white and gold, okay, met someone who saw it as black and blue, and the impulse impulse was, you're wrong and I'm right, and I want to argue with you in that way. I want to win a debate over the color of this dress. You'll never get to, whichever, which way you want to uh, metaphorically look at it, you'll never get to the deeper or or higher truth of the matter. You'll never get to all this stuff about overexposure and priors if you try to debate that. If you, But if you said instead, I wonder why we see it differently. That's curious. Now you could have a completely different kind of conversation that would explore how a person could see something differently. And that's the more valuable way of constructing disagreement. And that's why the dress is in the book. That's what it's all about.
1: Uh, the next chapter is on disequilibrium and, and you talk more about assimilation and an accommodation. You mentioned those earlier, but you better uh, explain <laughs> to us what, what those are because th- those are oh, key yeah. to changing minds.
0: Um, Sometimes the, the, the question often comes along, you know, like why are people so resistant to changing their minds? Um, and also like, well, how do minds change at all? And assimilation and accommodation are great Ways to make sense of that, Jean Piaget's uh, work, uh, uh, the the principles of genetic epistemology. If this is something that you find fascinating, I feel that anyone in the world of teaching and learning should have this book as a foundational text. Uh, it's just really important. He was trying to understand how knowledge is formed in the in the brain, and that's, that's where all those experiments with the kids and the glasses came from. Like, <laughs> which by the way, that, that I always think that when I go to a bar and they give me a tall drink. And I'm like, yeah, you're trying to, you're trying to piage me. Like, I know, I know, I know how much is in there. Um, the, uh, if, if, if no one knows what I'm talking about, he would give kids a, 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 wide glass and then pour the wide glass into the tall glass. And they would match at a certain age, uh, up to a certain age, kids seem to think, oh my God, you magically made me more stuff. And there's a certain age in which you go, I know what you did. And he was trying to determine like the natural arc of how a brain understands things and when that tends to kick in. So that was part of this model and the assimilation and accommodation are central to it. Um, So assimilation is uh, when you are disambiguated in the presence of something novel uh, or uncertain or ambiguous, you will disambiguate that by fitting it into an existing model. So it can be interpreted. As sort of confirmation of what you already understand. Um, accommodation, on the other hand, is acknowledging because there's too many incongruencies, or the there's too much threat to the incongruency, uh, or there's just too many anomalies that there's something must be incomplete or incorrect in the model, and you have to update the model so that novel so that the novel information is no longer an anomaly but a new layer of understanding. A great way to see this would be like uh, a small child sees a dog for the first time. And they point at it and you go, Oh yeah, look dog. And that's a new category for them. Dog. Got it. And something along the lines of uh, non-human walks on four legs, uh, furry tail dog. Then later on, they see a horse and they point at it and they'll say dog, or if they're a little bit more advanced, the uh, big dog. And when you say, no, 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 that's not a dog. That's a horse. Yeah, that was. This is the interplay of assimilation accommodation. When they pointed at the horse and said, dog, it's an attempt to assimilate. Like This seems to fit into the categories I already possess. It's non-human, four legs, tail, furry. But when you say, no, that's a, a horse, they must accommodate. They must create a, a new category in which both dogs and horses can fit. So they may not have a name for it yet, but something mentally takes place for its animal or creature or something like that. And literally, it's like expanding your mind. You have to have a new category to fit the other two categories within, and you start that nesting. So we're doing this at all times. like In this conversation, um, all day long, we are assimilating some things, accommodating others. And you do that long enough, the models get so complex and robust that it's a lot easier to assimilate than it is to accommodate. And since if there's just a low level of threat, a small amount of, of incongruency, You'll be alert. You become alert when something doesn't seem to fit, but you'll err on the side of your priors as you evaluate. And it's pretty easy to interpret almost everything as uh, evidence that you've been right all along, (laughs) evidence that the way you see the world still is the way to see it. It takes um, something pretty... I mean, I, I could imagine like if you open the door to your apartment or your house this afternoon and you see a little marching band of snakes going around on the floor, like your first... Uh, like thought isn't, oh, I guess snakes can do that. Uh, it's going to be something like, oh, is this a hallucination? Is this a trick? Is this a a hologram? Like you try to make it fit before you s- step into that. okay, I need to rethink how the world works. And that's those are the engines, assimilation versus accommodation. and um, all brains resist, sure, but some things will motivate us to resist more than others. and as as you have read in the book, um, social concerns tend to be the things that generate the most resistance. And oddly, I think, um, there are a lot of cat, there are a lot of places where people feel that resistance, but it's hard to acknowledge personally that the nature of the resistance is social. It doesn't feel that way. And, ter- uh, you know, uh, subjectively, subjectively, it feels like something else. The,
1: um, the next, well, chapter six is on, uh, the truth is tribal that, that really I think that's sort of the motto for the book, or at least it was one of the most imp- important um, implications for me. And in chapter six, he said, it's rational to resist facts when no one has a social safety net. So this this goes back to the idea of the danger of uh, social death um, being very real. If if you don't feel like you're safe, like you belong, and you, uh, uh, you have a high need to conform, Um, is that why?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, another way of looking at this is we are social primates and, but we're not just social primates. We are ultra social primates. We have survived and we, you know, natural selection got us to where we are today by having us think in group terms. Like we form and maintain groups and we have so much innate behavior that drives that shame, embarrassment. Fear of ostracism; those things are there to help us stay in groups and stay good members of groups, and be on the lookout for people who aren't being good members of groups. And a lot of what we think of as identity is really group identity. It's it's the that which identifies us as us and not them. And we uh, some people don't like using the word tribal. I, I understand that there's other terms for it: in group bias. Group affinity. I mean, even if you want to go to like partisanship, but we understand the idea. The concept is that we're social animals, and we we pursue belonging goals and are motivated by belonging goals more than anything else when it comes to our innate propensities, both to behave and to uh, assimilate and accommodate. And given a choice between being wrong or being a bad member of our group, we usually err on the side of. Well, I would rather not starve in the woods and or have no chance at a mate or no chance at allies or face, you know, reality itself alone. So people tend to be persuaded and to persuade themselves to go with information that keeps them as stable member of a group and in their reputation and their status are managed in a certain way. But all that happens so surreptitiously; it happens so innately that it can be very invisible and people can engage in behaviors like with a, like anti-masking and anti-vaxxing that seems like they're pursuing some sort of rational end, but the motivation to even pursue information to suggest that this is a good idea goes all the way down to the processing chain to, well, I try, I'm trying to be a good member of my group. I don't want to be identified as someone who should be shamed. and. It can be very difficult for people to accept that, but the research bears it out. And that's the idea. And In the book, I talk about how that that's what leads people into things like conspiratorial communities and um, cults and things like that. There's all sorts of allures that bring people into one of those groups. But once you're in the group, it's the feeling that I want to stay in this group and not be kicked out that really motivates people to think, act, and behave in certain ways
1: in a chapter on persuasion you say that beliefs and attitudes form our values I, i'd love to have you just define beliefs and attitudes and tell us why values are so important
0: isn't this uh it's really interesting that this is something that um i was astonished to learn how recent some of this is there are uh, a couple of great books on this the, the history of the language of, of, of science in general, but psychology in, in particular, um, most of the terms we use in psychology are 20th century and forward terms. Um, and many cult- cultures, the Greeks, the Romans, like they didn't have concepts like motivation or personality or, uh, behavior. Like they, they had different concepts, but I wouldn't necessarily, they wouldn't define them the way we define them, not even words like intelligence and in social psychology, in the earlier days, you could use the word belief, opinion, norm, uh, notion, um, attitude. Even you could use all these terms like interchangeably. They this were like stuff we think. And it wasn't until uh, really until World War II and beyond that we started to, to need categories to describe these very specific mental states and mental concepts. Um, so today. A belief would be considered uh, information encoded into the brain that has that carries with it this sub-emotional tag of uh, certainty or uncertainty. The more certain you feel, the more true it seems, and the less certain, the more false. Which allows us to hold beliefs and information in the mind that we know aren't true. Like I can think about Harry Potter and be aware that it's fiction. But it's, there's a interest, I believe that that is not true, which is a f- fantastic philosophical <laughs> snaking its tail kind of thing. And attitude is an estimation of, it's a positive or negative evaluation. It's, it's, an, it's an evaluative concept. Um, if I say peanut butter and chocolate chip ice cream, you have a nice positive evaluation of that, that we consider you have a attitude that I could quantify somewhere around you know, eight, nine or 10 And if I say like medical waste uh, in a bowl, you're going to have a very negative attitude. Um, And that can apply to anything that you can conceive of. I can say uh, Bill Clinton, or I can say uh, um, um, Shania Twain, like you're going to have attitudes about those things. So then you have all your beliefs and all your attitudes together about a certain um, construct and you can place it in a hierarchy of values. Which is to say, where should I? Where should my time, money, effort, and concern most was? What where should I be most applied? And could I put that on a scale? We usually don't articulate any of these things. They're not necessarily very salient, but we feel them very strongly that we value this more than this, or certain concepts like truth or justice are more valuable than others. And the great thing about all of these constructs—they all work together. They're all ingredients that make the cake of or. Are uh, models of reality, and they sometimes come into conflict. That's we'll have cognitive dissonance when that happens, and they feel we'll need to resolve it. But when we meet other human beings, or read their work, or see the output of their creative processes, sometimes we'll notice, oh, wait, that's maybe my belief is not the same as everybody else's belief, nor is my attitude or value. And there's a really interesting interplay when we come into contact with the fact that. Hmm, I could see this differently. I could look at this differently. I could possibly update this, or I might resist that.
1: David, I uh, I think we need a whole nother podcast to talk about the education implications. Uh, I I argued in a, a book called "Difference Making: At the Art of Learning" that that we ought to, as as learning institutions, be committed to equipping young people to be change makers, to be difference makers, to be solutionaries, to make the world better. And if you buy any of that, then then your book would be required reading because we, we would need to teach this technology of how groups act and why and how in chapter 10, you talk about social change, how social change happens and why. Do, do you think we need to introduce these concepts of what we're learning in social psychology and in high school and college, and where would it show up in a psychology class? Does it change the way we think about history? What are the implications for what we teach and how we teach?
0: I mean, the the overall answer is oh yeah, definitely, uh, for sure, yes, yes, yes. the The more granular response is like. I mean, it needs to, it has to be part of everything. So like there are certain rhetorical truths and critical thinking truths that are essential to being a good student and a good teacher and a good administrator when it comes to putting information into people's minds and, and having that come out as understanding of anything. And the the process by which we evaluate novel and ambiguous ambiguous information, or just learns the way we actually take in unfamiliar information and incorporate it. Um, it's vital that we understand the process there now more than ever because the we've gone through an incredible paradigm shift of what it means to send and receive information between human brains. Like this is much bigger than when we got television, this is much bigger when we've got cable television and VCRs and CD-ROMs and VHS tapes, the, this many to many change that social media, the internet and smartphones have brought into our lives means that you engage with potential misinformation more than you ever have before. And the people who trade in misinformation have gotten really good at matching your attitudes and values so that you will set, just accept it and pass it along. The cognitive psychologist, Tom Stafford, told me that you can think of it like this. Germs were always a problem for human beings and groups, but then we developed cities and it became an absolute, possibly species-extinguishing existential problem. So to solve that, at the level of the city, they had to develop sanitation, and at the level of individuals, we had to develop best practices like washing your hands and boiling water. When it comes to trading information back and forth, misinformation and who to trust and how to trust, how to vet and all those things, how to fact check, that was always a problem for human beings in groups. But then we got this, this massive uh, information, chaotic, epistemic m- mega load of change and how we interact with information. and. Now it's an existential crisis for the human species, and we need to develop at the level of platforms and institutions the equivalent of uh, sanitation. And then across several generations spread, we're going to have to develop the equivalent when it comes to misinformation of washing our hands and boiling water. I would prefer if people learn that as they're coming up through the first few years of, of being a person and going through. You know, all the different levels of school before you go out in the world, then I would throw them out there into to the wolves of all of this and learn it on the back end. And that's how most people do. You you can meet, I meet plenty of people in every generation, Gen Z and up, who are, some are great at it and some are bad at it. And the results vary, but depending on, you know, wh- what their experiences have been in these domains.
1: So this brings up... Um, a big question, which is, I think the job of leading a, a learning organization, a school or a school district or a university is, is now different as a result. Um, if you want to teach some of the things that we've just talked about, it would require a new set of agreements, a new consensus about the goals and purpose of education. And that itself would take a lot of the strategies that we've been talking about, deep canvassing. And you end the book by talking about street epistemology and social change, but it strikes me that education leaders would need these tools to craft new agreements to form sufficient consensus to change what we teach and how we teach it. So this this new knowledge feels like it needs to be woven into how we train, uh, School uh, administrators and and
0: civic leaders. I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I remember I every once in a while I go teach uh, just for a couple of days at my alma mater. I teach uh, interviewing and and, and journalism. Uh, I jump into a journalism course and, and just lecture for a couple of days. Last time I did that, uh, it was when you remember the boat that got stuck in the canal. Um, I I put that up. I put that up on the on my slide. I said, how many people here? know about this. And every, these are all people past 18, you know, they're, they're getting their degrees. I said, how many people know about this? And they all raised their hands. And these are all people training to be journalists. And I said, where did you learn about this? And every single person said they learned it on social media. Not a single person learned it from a news source. These are students in journalism. They did not learn it from the news. And there were varying. Then I was like, "What do you know about this?" And it, there, there were, there were thirty different ways to look at it because they had each one of them had learned it in thirty different ways. The skills required to make sense of new information and the skills required to have conversations about it are vital to the learning process, and they're vital to teaching the learning, learn, t- teaching and learning, and um, taking the big things that have survived. If we're going to talk about it, I went to a, I, I interviewed a, the spokesperson for the Flat Earthers uh, live on stage in Sweden. They have conferences, they have their own dating apps. Uh, that doesn't seem like something that should happen uh, if you've gone to high school. So uh, there's something afoot and I think that we can to- we totally are in, posi- in a position to do something about it.
1: Ron, don't walk to your computer and get a copy of How Minds Change: The Surprising Science of Belief, Opinion and Persuasion. You can learn more about David McCraney at youarenotsosmart.com. I think once you, once you, once Caravan Clash becomes an earworm, you're going you're to be hooked on uh, his podcast. David, thanks so much for sort of learning out loud over the last five years. It, you've developed a, a huge following of people that are learning along with you about why we do what we do, and so many of us just deeply appreciate your contribution to making us uh, better humans.
0: So, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, this is the I love getting on like uh, your podcast is just. I'm so glad there are podcasts like yours out there. I'm glad that we found each other. I, I want to find more places like this to to preach the good word. Um, yeah, and go to davidmcrainey.com if you are interested in the book. I've got like a nice roundtable video with me and three or four different experts on these topics where we kind of hash it out. And uh, there's tons of other extra material there. If you just like, I want to look at this for a minute before I commit to a purchase, but yeah, it's there.
1: How minds change, David McCraney. Thanks for being with us. And thanks to our producer, Mason Pasha and the whole Getting Smart team for making this possible. See you next week. Till then, keep leading and learning and innovating for equity. Use, do some deep canvassing this week. See you next time.
0: Thanks so much.